Welcome to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman, and those of you who listened last week heard part one of a two-part series on a cult group called Synanon that had in its heyday thousands of devoted followers, facilities all over the country and in Europe, and had proclaimed that, quote, anything less than changing the world is Mickey Mouse. So we have now arrived at part two of the Synanon story as told to you by my brother Sam and me, both of us being Synanon residents in the late 60s, early 70s. Sam lived in the Oakland, California Synanon for three years, and I lived in the Santa Monica and San Diego facilities for two years. Now, for those of you who did not hear part one, I urge you to find it in the Election Connection archives. Just go to our website, forwardradio.org, click on the Programs tab, and select Election Connection. It should be there on the playlist. So, we continue now with our Synanon story and the rest of the story of how Synanon eventually folded. So here is my brother, Sam. Phase huh. one of Synanon from 1958 through 1967 was a wonderful drug rehab. And Time magazine did the article Miracle on the Beach. And that's how Synanon got so much support and donation. And, and that's how Synanon gained its tax-exempt status. It was that it was a, a drug rehab kind of a situation. Uh -huh. And then phase two around 1967 is when Synanon became interested in lifestylers or uh -huh. people like you and other people who didn't have drug and alcohol problems, but thought that the Synanon philosophy and way of life was some form of utopia and wanted to join. And uh -huh. the trip was one facility to do that, to convert people into, into lifestylers to become uh -huh. resident. I must correct you, though. I moved in as a character disorder. Even though I didn't take any drugs, I categorized myself as a character disorder because I felt so depressed and so confused. And I also felt that I didn't want to put myself at a level above any of the drug addicts. So <laughs> I moved in as a character disorder. The same designation given drug addicts. I suppose that was your... Um longing to just be one of the gang. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about our experiences on the trip. I think that the trip itself was designed mainly to bring in, to indoctrinate outsiders, you know, doctors, lawyers, architects, professional people that could bring in their incomes into Synanon. That's phase two of Synanon. Well, let me just say the trip was a 66-hour event. You had to stay up for 66 hours. That 72 was something... in my case, 72, 72. yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. yeah, and it was pretty awful. Mine were so traumatic that I think I've uh, actually blocked a lot of it, but I think I can talk about it. Mine was very yeah. traumatic as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started out with a lot of mystical kinds of stuff. I remember the Ouija board. Ouija boards, the, right. Foot, mm -hmm. foot washing. A lot of just mystical stuff. Burning incense. 
Uh-huh. Uh, I think they had like certain crystals maybe that they would even bring into it. Uh, certain objects of spirituality and religious objects uh-huh. and different music that they would play. And, and everybody had to wear what? White robes? A white and- robe, no jewelry, no watches, no, no makeup. makeup. No makeup. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was really traumatic for me. Yeah. When George Burns, who was like, I think in in his late 90s, was asked if he still used makeup, he said, oh, not above the waist. <laughs> <laughs> but no everybody had to remove every distinguishing yeah. thing for their identity so that uh-huh. everybody pretty much looked the same yeah. with a white robe yeah. and i remember who my trip leader was it was betty georgilis does that name ring a bell oh yeah she was a big deal in in santa monica she was um, not a regent but she was like a director of something yeah, and the regents were the highest level. There was Chuck. He was God. And then uh-huh. underneath Chuck were 12 regents. And they all represented different things, different departments. You know, Dan Garrett, for example, who becomes very important in the last phase of Synanon when it turned into a violent cult. He was a lawyer and a lifestyler. Uh, they made him a regent. And because he was a lawyer, trial lawyer, he, you know, ran Synanon's legal department. And I might add yeah. that Synanon had a lot of celebrities in it. Do you remember? I do. <laughs> Art Pepper. I don't know if people remember Art Pepper. He was a... Saxophone jazz. Buddy, jazz Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett was a comedian. Les McCann was also a jazz musician. Frank Rehack was also a jazz mm-hmm. musician. Nancy Culp. Yes, Robert Culp's wife or and ex-wife. Robert, and by the way, Robert Culp and Ben Gazzara and Leonard Nimoy were all uh, Hollywood people that gave a lot of um, donation to Synanon in the um, mid to late 60s. Yeah, and then a fellow by the name of Matt Beard, who was with the, the Little Rascals. <laughs> yeah, Matt Beard was the guy who drove the Scenic Cruiser, which was like a Greyhound bus that drove uh, the residents back and forth from the San Francisco to the Oakland, to the Tamales Bay, to the Santa Monica facility. So, you know, if if you needed to take trips, you did that on the uh, Scenic Cruiser. Uh And uh, Matt Beard, yes, he was Steiny in The Little Rascals. He became a friend of mine. I really liked him. He was a really really? great guy. Yeah, he was a great guy. I I knew him well. Okay, so back to the trip, not the Cena Cruiser trip, but the Synanon trip. So uh, it started out mystical, but then, as I remember it, they put us into these game rooms, the same as the Synanon game. Yeah. But it went on hour after hour after hour. And in my experience, what happened to me was that at some point, and it must have been like around 24 hours I had been up, I was doing a lot of fidgeting because I was trying to stay awake. And the the worst thing was to fall asleep. You couldn't fall asleep. They wouldn't let you fall asleep. And so Betty Georgilis got really angry at me, and she kicked me out of the room. She said, you've got to go and be banished to another room and sit by yourself and ponder to yourself, why you are misbehaving in the game. And so I sat in this room all by myself for five hours. Yeah. And I was so... And you weren't being fed either, right? You weren't being fed. Right. 
And I felt so dejected and so ashamed of myself and humiliated. So I kept myself awake, trying to be a good girl, trying to, you know, do what Betty Georgilis wanted me to do. And I waited and I waited and waited. And finally, finally, somebody came after five or six hours and brought me back into the room. And then what happened after that was she said to me, you know what, Ruth, you are such a a nothing that we didn't even remember that we had kicked you out. We didn't even remember anything about you. You have no impact on this group whatsoever. And by that time, what she was saying to me was going right to my heart, you know, and just like stabbing. And so, of course, I broke down. I totally, totally broke down. She said, you know, we forgot about you because we didn't even remember that you existed. We completely forgot. And that's why you were in that room for all those hours, because nobody remembered about you. Yeah. So what it cut me to the core. What the whole function of that trip was, was to really break down people. And, uh, you know, the games that you were talking about, they were going specifically after the horrible things that you've done in your life. And by the way, I'm sitting in a room with heroin addicts and myself, I wasn't a heroin addict. I had been just a kid that was taking psychedelic drugs and smoking a lot of pot and going to concerts. I really didn't have a whole lot of things that I had done, but I, I think I imagined something or, I mean, there were women saying I threw my baby in a dumpster. People were coming up with these horrible things that they had actually forgotten about themselves. They had forgotten. Yes. Yes. And then breaking down into these tears where they were like convulsing. Yeah. And what happened in my game is that while it was going on, there was this banging on the wall in the other room, loud, loud banging. And what we found out later was there was a guy in the game next door to us who confessed to murdering his girlfriend he was a drug addict and he had never ever been accused or you know arrested or anything but in that synanon trip he confessed to murdering his girlfriend mm. and that was what the banging was all about i mean people that's what the trip brought out of people yeah they were banging on you to confess they were banging on me to confess and and the people who had already confessed to their horrible things that they had mm-hmm. done, they were feeling already strongly connected. You could see that they were feeling a part of, that they had that sense of belonging. And you know what? Underneath everything, that's what we all want. We all want to belong. I mean, you could say that is the primary motivation that most people have, is, is to be socially significant, to be loved, and to belong yeah. Through this, this social structure. I don't even remember what I confessed to, but I made something up because, <laughs> because after about 60 hours of this and you're already hallucinating and swimming in your own delusions. I know uh, I was. I remember. The group, the group had formed into this tight little bunch that were hugging each other in the center of the room. Right. And do you want to be in this group, Sam? No, you can't be in this group. And I would actually, you know, me and others would actually try to get into the group and were pushed out. And that action of being pushed out triggered this primal angst, this kind Uh of primal emptiness, I guess this great existential emptiness that's at the bottom of all of our guts somehow. And uh, I started crying uncontrollably. Then I made up something. 
to become a part of the group. And then, and then you got loved to death. You were got hard yes. and accepted. Yes. And it was extremely euphoric. It was, it was exhilarating. And I remember the same thing. I remember confessing and convulsing on the floor and then people picking me up, people hugging me, people telling me all kinds of nice things about how they really loved me. And I remember at the very end of the trip, hallucinating and being you it was like I was on some kind of a, a drug trip and I'm I guess that's where they got the name of the trip wasn't it well you From, know that like an acid Chuck, trip Chuck was a big believer in LSD he, he used LSD quite a bit in the beginning huh. not the beginning of Synanon but in his recovery with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh-huh and by and the way, that, so did Bill W the founder of AA he he was also one of those guys that used LSD in uh-huh. the beginning so yeah, so that, the trip came from that. It was a trip. Yeah, it was a, a non-drug-induced, mm-hmm. hallucinatory, exhilarating experience. I mean, you went through hell, but at the end of it, you came out exhilarated and in love with everybody. And you felt <laughs> like it was all one. And I suppose if you were to measure it physiologically, your brain is is producing all this oxytocin and all these endorphins and dopamine. Ah. And, and it's the same feeling that an infant feels when they're breastfeeding and uh, what Sigmund Freud described as oceanic bliss. That was a good way to describe it as oceanic bliss. Yeah. So that was the Synanon trip. Oh, I wanted you to talk about, we all had little jobs at Synanon. Talk a little bit about the children, the children in Synanon, because they did not live with their parents. Well, you know, this is good to get to this subject because we do want to talk about how Synanon dissolved. Huh? And it's, it's actually because of the children that Synanon dissolved. It was because Synanon was adopting the format of the kibbutz in Israel. And we actually had a guy, his name was Al Bauman, who was an educator who had lived in Israel and who had worked on a kibbutz with children. And he formed the Synanon School. And he was also a regent. Okay, so he was one of the 12. And Al Bauman formed the Synanon School. And I worked in the school. First, I worked in food service. That was the first job I had. Uh, Then I think I was an elevator operator and I did a few other things. You know, Synanon had all of its own industries. It had a sales team. It, it had hustlers that would go out into the community and get goods and services for Synanon. And I ended up in the school. You know, when children reached the age of six months, this is the same as in Israel in the kibbutz, they were taken from their families and put into a communal situation raised by the community. And I worked with two to four-year-olds. That was my area. I was called a school demonstrator. They didn't call you a teacher. You were a demonstrator because uh-huh. the philosophy was that children do what they see, not what they hear. Interesting. But the children lived in this communal uh, mm-hmm. facility removed from their parents. Yes. And, and their parents would only see them what? How often? Well, it uh, depends on, on what position the parents held. Uh, with the two to four-year-olds, a lot of the parents were actually working in the school itself, so they would see uh-huh. their kids more frequently. But I would say on the average, probably they would see their children once a week, something along those lines. I really can't tell you much about the academic structure of the school because I was working only with two to four-year-olds, and it was really just a socialization program. 
getting them to play nicely and all of that. Maybe we could describe a little bit about how we lived. I know for me, I lived in an apartment complex, and what they did is they would put eight women out in the front room, and then there would be one bedroom, and two women would be in the bedroom, and they would kind of be the overseers of the apartment, the ones that enforced the discipline. The discipline was very much like the military. I mean, you had to make your bed, and it had to be perfectly smooth. Otherwise, you would get your mattress turned over. You could get your clothing all dumped out in the middle of the room if you were not neat with your clothing, I remember. It's a lot like what you would see in a, like in the Marine Corps in basic training, you know, like full metal jacket. Yeah, that apartment complex that you referred to in Santa Monica, and there was one in Oakland where I lived, they, uh-huh. they called it the clump, C-L-U-M-P. That was the term for it. And so we would get up every morning and then get on a bus and go to the main uh, facility and then have our jobs and then have our meals and then come back to the clump. And I remember living in a room of about four people uh, mm-hmm. in my room. And I remember not making my bed once and coming home and seeing that my mattress, my box spring, my sheets and my blankets and my pillows were in the swimming pool. They had thrown <laughs> in the swimming pool. Yes. You know, it's like you better get your shit together or this is what's going to happen to you. It was like boot camp. Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just mention about our food intake because all of our food was pretty much donations. And so they used to brag that they could feed people for 50 cents a day per person, 50 cents a day. And that meant that our food was pretty bad. I just remember chicken cacciatore, lots and lots and lots of canned chicken cacciatore because at that time, cyclamates had just been outlawed, Yeah, that artificial sweetener called cyclamate. And so the company just donated all of the cyclamates and Synanon got them all. And so I just remember living off of uh, chicken cacciatore day after day. And you were saying something about Jet Set Jello. <laughs> yeah, Jet Set Jello, which I don't think uh, appeared in the mainstream society for very long, but it certainly happened in Synanon. They, they got uh, probably every carton of Jet Set Jello that was ever made. And uh, Ghirardelli's chocolate was, yeah. was ubiquitous, it was everywhere, everywhere all the time. And, and people uh, gained a lot of weight in Synanon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they did. That's right. And guess what? When Chuck, in 1977, had been told by his doctor that he had to lose weight because he had a heart condition, he got rid of all those foods and he made everybody go on a crash diet and lose weight. And he instituted aerobics. Oh, really? As huh. a way of life. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, and speaking of which, also, there was a lifestyle in terms of the way you looked, and overalls was the highest level, as I remember. I mean, Chuck always, do you remember this? Chuck always I wore think overalls. overalls was the uniform. That was our uniform, was Well, overalls. I couldn't get overalls. I remember in Santa Monica that I couldn't get overalls hmm. because that was only for people that had a certain status. And I was going to say, it, living in the apartments... I never got out of the front room. That was also another way of your status is whether or not you lived either in the front room or in a back bedroom. 
And I never in my two years in Synanon got out of the front room of eight people in cots <laughs> because it was very status. Yeah. When I left, and I, and I had already been in the school, so I had some status. And I was a pretty good game player, too. I got to be uh-huh. pretty good on my feet with that. And that actually led to my career, which is, you know, being a psychotherapist. But, uh, yeah, I, I matriculated and graduated to, to the point where I, I could have one roommate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was in a semi-private at the end. Yeah. And then did you want to talk about the whole sex thing, how they allowed people to have sex? I don't well, know about you know what? There, there, were, there were cardinal rules in Synanon, uh-huh. and one was no violence or threat of violence. Those were the only actual rules in the, in the Synanon game itself. But also in the community, though, those were the first two basic cardinal rules. And the third was, um, you know, you couldn't have sex, especially brand newcomers coming in could not have sex. You had to be there for like a year or 18 months. Right, yeah. Uh, and then you could identify a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and then you, you could make a reservation for what they called the guest room. Yes, yes. And the guest room was you made an appointment for two hours or, or actually probably for the whole evening that you could spend with, with somebody. And... Um, you know, yes, you, you had to plan it out long it to, in advance. It had to be, a, it had to be approved by your, your tribe leader and the yes. other person's tribe leader. Yeah, right. I think I only had one guest room appearance. <laughs> <laughs> I had already been in uh, Synanon for about two and a half years, and it was it was a horribly dysfunctional relationship. I, I don't so even was wanna, mine. I, I don't want to try to remember. It was every, everything, <laughs> everything went awry in that one. But uh, one thing that yeah. went awry in my in mine is that we had an appointment in the guest room and it was the night of one of the general meetings. And, and we'll need to talk about that. The general meeting. I think it was the wee hours of the morning. They they invaded all the rooms. <laughs> that was when we were in the guest room. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about the general well, meeting? You know, we talked about the trip and the stew as being instruments of of keeping a cult intact. And, uh-huh. you know, keep, keeping, you know, that, that true believer current going and, and the, the need to have approval and so forth and the fear of being rejected. And the general meeting operated on the same principle. The, you know, tribe leaders or somebody important in Synanon would uh, be cued into a situation. Someone was bringing in drugs. Somebody had been sleeping with somebody else. A violation of a cardinal rule was taking place. So the entire community of Oakland, or in your case, Santa Monica, or wherever you were, had to be uh, rousted out, brought into a general assembly in the main facility. And, you know, you would be attacked by all of these people until people started um, confessing. Yeah, yeah. I was a victim of a general meeting once, and, and my confession went down along with... A few other people because we had brought in some drugs into Synod. Oh, really? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Huh. I went in in 69. I think that occurred in early 1970. So I wasn't there that long when that happened. Uh-huh. But my time, uh, my three years in there, I, I think I experienced three general meetings. And so people had to come into this auditorium. And 
and actually stay there, just like you would have to stay in the in the stew or the game or the trip until everybody had copped out. And then yeah. you know, people had their bald heads and their and they had yeah. to wear signs. They had disciplinary actions taken against them. And it was a way of house cleaning. Yeah, yeah. And it happened at the Santa Monica facility when I was there on the basis of hoarding. They claimed that there were some residents who were hoarding things and putting them under their beds and hiding stuff. And so in the wee hours of the night, they came into every single apartment house and they just created havoc and chaos. It was. And one of my roommates was an African-American woman, a former heroin addict, who had, because of her heroin, had lost all of her teeth and had false teeth. And they took her teeth. They confiscated her teeth. I don't know that she ever got them back. She was so terrified by the whole thing. She never even said anything, I don't think. They turned over mattresses. and, And I remember being, like you said, taken to the auditorium, where everybody had to confess to something, that they had hoarded something. And I remember in my brain, I was thinking, oh, my God, I have to come up with something that I hoarded. I have to come up with something. Uh And so I came up with a lie (laughs) because I... With a lie. With a lie. I had to say Uh something. Oh, I know what it was. It wasn't (laughs) a lie. I said that I had had liked somebody's (laughs) lipstick, somebody in my... I liked her lipstick and I tried it on one day without yeah. her knowledge. So that's what I confess to. <laughs> okay. It did, did you want to say anything else about the general meetings? It was just another tool, another tool mm-hmm. to uh, reinforce congruity and compliance and, you know, fortify the true believer status in everybody and keep things going in a certain direction. And you are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, your community mouthpiece, amplifier, energizer, networker, whatever it is you out there can help us to become in support of grassroots empowerment. And you are always welcome and encouraged to go to our website, forwardradio.org and get involved either by clicking on the participate or donate tabs. Even if it's just a one-shot presentation or something you're passionate about, we invite you to get in touch with us and contribute your two cents worth, whether literally or figuratively. So let's get back now to our show, Election connection with me Ruth Newman your host in conversation with my brother Sam Newman as we continue reminiscing about our experiences living in a cult group called Synanon. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the good things that came out of Synanon? Because primary on my list of good things is Uh the experience that I had there of being completely colorblind because we had our own vocabulary, our own culture, it was just a totally closed-in community. And we had our own language that we used, you know, things like teeth and fuzz, act as if, owl watch, pull up, tribe, a lot of different vocabulary. And because of that, I think in any case, I didn't see people as 
African-American or Hispanic or white because yeah. everybody had the same culture, the same kind of jargon, the same behaviors. I don't think there was any, uh, you know, racial uh, or ethnic tensions in Sinanon. There weren't. And yeah. just yeah. as many blacks were in positions of power as whites, yeah. if not more. Right. Although one thing is that, at least in Santa Monica, I don't believe we had any Asians. I don't think there were any Asians living in Sinanon. I never thought about that, but uh, you yeah. might be right. I'm trying to think about that, and I, of course, this was so long ago. Yeah. Uh, the good aspects of Sinanon. Remember, Sinanon began when Diedrich was, you know, having these um, blissful, uh, ecstatic sessions with LSD, and he was seeing a utopian kind of society. So, yes, he in that utopian society, people were equal. And, and from, from that utopian society, people were being honest. You know, people were uh -huh. um, confronting and, and being, and being self-reflective and operating in a kind of uh, uh, populist way, the good of everybody. And, uh, you know, later on, actually, when, when Chuck was told to quit smoking and told to uh, improve his diet, you know, they were bringing in important measures like working out, you know, staying in good physical condition. They introduced um, the Transcendental Meditation into Synanon yeah. when I was there. And the use of a group for problem solving, the use of uh, the dialogical method, you know, uh -huh. for, for problem solving was something very positive that I learned in Synanon, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and uh -huh. that you, know, you can get a group of diverse thinking and feeling people and come up with some interesting solutions that you would have never thought of. And that was actually part of the reach, which we didn't talk about, right? The reach? Which I, was I was never on a reach. I never went on one. Oh, okay, but a reach was for 48 hours, yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. was supposed to be where you entered into a group process of discovery in the area of science or mathematics or culture, and you were supposed to possibly solve problems, try to figure out how things worked, understand the universe, not necessarily to come up with the right answer, but just to go into a, a group exploration there were yeah. architects in Synanon, and uh -huh. um, at that time, like in 69 and 70, 71, remember Buckminster Fuller? His, he had oh, written yeah. a book called Nine Chains to the Moon, and uh -huh. he was talking about the strength and integrity of the geodesic dome. Uh -huh. And you see a lot of, you know, in these New Age communities and communes, you see a lot of domes. But in Tamala Space, Synanon started building domes. Uh -huh. Out of the reach uh -huh. and meetings like that came some new architectural ideas and some uh -huh. things and like fact, that. They had students of Buckminster Fuller come visit us in Santa Monica and give talks. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And I remember one of the things that I've held on to ever since then was one of Bucky's students saying that there is no such thing as pollution. There is no such thing as pollution. Anything that we term as pollution is just something that's out of place. Oh, he called like, it misplaced matter. 
Yes, yes. I and he used that. the example of smog. He said the only reason we have smog is because we are putting these particulates up in the air and they do not belong in the air. They belong in the ground. They're not pollutants. There's no such thing as garbage. Everything has value. It just yeah, has it's to just be misplaced. It's misplaced, exactly. So yeah. and that has yeah. stuck with me all all of my life after that. Yeah. The big other thing I think that we have to give Synanon credit for was getting people off of drugs. I think yeah. it was the best thing around for getting people off of drugs. Well, you know, they, they even called it brainwashing. You know, yes, Synanon sir. was, they, they didn't mince words with that. You were going to yeah. be brainwashed because your brain was dirty. You know, with, I know, with, that was a quote from Chuck. Dirty brains need to be washed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, Synanon employed some, you know, rigorous act, physical activity, rigorous emotional activity, requiring uh, reflection and honesty. And those are still the principles used in, in modern drug and alcohol rehab. You know, prior to Synanon, really, uh, addicts and alcoholics would just go to a mental hospital somewhere and get shot up with Thorazine, you know, just right. tranquilizer drugs. And, and then just, you know, tucked away, really. You know, it wasn't really uh, treated therapeutically. Synanon was one of the first therapeutic communities. And there are now therapeutic communities like Synanon. Uh, one is called Phoenix House, and it's been around for a long time, and it helps people with drug problems. And uh, there's another uh, facility that it's called CEDU, and it's up in Running Springs. And CEDU stands for... Charles E. Diedrich University. Is that right? That's right. Huh. And, wow. and uh, so they employ this, some of the same methods to keep mostly kids uh, off of drugs. Rigorous reflection in group setting, but also rigor in, in nature, you know, learning how to be more self-reliant in nature, survivalist techniques, uh -huh. all things that are very good for building self-esteem. When you mentioned uh, Thorazine, there was yeah. a fellow in Synanon in the Santa Monica facility that I admired greatly because he was so articulate and had so much wisdom. But he made one mistake when he left. He left Synanon, but he yeah. took his guitar. He took his guitar with him. Yeah. And when you move into Synanon, you sign, legally sign everything over to Synanon. I signed everything over to Synanon when I moved in. So when he took his guitar they were able to call the police on him and he was arrested and somehow he went from being in jail to being in a mental facility where he was just warehoused and given lots and lots of Thorazine. And then um, close to the end of my time, I don't know, a few months before I left, he was brought back to Synanon, but he was in a perpetual stupor and the time I was there, he never, ever came out of that stupor. And that I can attribute to all the Thorazine that he was given. And that was because he made the one mistake of, of taking his guitar of taking his guitar with him. And it ruined yeah. him, I'm sure, for the rest of his life. You want to talk a little bit about how you and I both ended up withdrawing from Synanon a little bit? Talk about that. Okay. My story is probably different than yours. I don't know if you and I have ever really um, talked about it before. Okay, so I made friends with a Synanon member 
Uh, his name was Greg Ray, and um, he and I were into uh, we were into running. We were running like ten miles a day. We were into health foods. We were into music. He was like a fantastic guitarist. And I played a little bit of guitar. In fact, everything I do on the guitar, I learned from Greg Ray, I think. Just about everything. And so we became our own little uh, social unit within this big unit. And we started to grow increasingly disenchanted with Synanon in the direction it was going. It was becoming more cult-like before our very eyes. And our program of recovery was, uh, you know, intensive working out and fasting and and even trying some different kinds of meditation. And um, we got rotated from Oakland back to Santa Monica. And this was in the summer of 1972. We worked in the gas station, in in the Santa Monica gas station. They owned and operated a gas station in Santa Monica. And, and Greg and I, uh, we were starting to read things like Be Here Now by Baba Ramdas, Richard Alpert. Greg Ray and I transferred out of Oakland and we went to Santa Monica and we were roommates together. And we, we were reading uh, books from people like Baba Ramdas, books on yoga, books on reincarnation, books on spirituality. And we were in our own little program, our whole way of thinking was kind of divergent from the Synanon way of thinking. And it involved exercise and meditation and all that. And so we just decided one day to, to leave. You know, uh, it was a good summer day. We decided on a Friday that we were going to leave, and we left on a Monday. And what did you do? We left. I don't remember everything, every detail, but I remember that we walked out of the building in Synanon. We walked out of the main building, and uh, and I think I called Dad. And then one thing led to a next, the next, and I was living at home, and you were at Berkeley, and um, Mom and Dad divorced and split up, and you know the rest is history. Yeah, I had a different method of leaving. <laughs> I had been transferred over to the San Diego facility, which was a converted Safeway store. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yes. And I, as I said, I never got out of the front room in Santa Monica and in San Diego. I was put washing pots. That's what, well, first I started out cooking, but then I got, I got demoted to washing pots. The reason being that I wanted to save the food that they would have me throw out all the Mm -hmm. pancake batter or throw out you know, lots and lots of food, and I would try to put it back into another dish for another meal. So I got busted, put to washing pots, and and I became aggravated. And I think I said something to one of the people I was living with about being um, a little bit forlorn and, and depressed. Well, she immediately told the head of the facility because you're not supposed to say anything negative on the floor in Synanon. You could only say negative things in a game. That's true. And I had said something negative outside of a game. So this person gave me a haircut. He stood me two inches away from him, and Mm -hmm. and he cussed me out and screamed and yelled. (laughs) Yours was more dramatic, a more dramatic moving. And I forgot to mention that I had, uh, maybe a couple weeks earlier, I had sent a letter 
that I in, initially put in, in a trash can. I'm thinking it was a mailbox. I was just so beside myself. But I ended up sending a letter to mom and dad telling them how upset I was living in Synanon. So anyway, so I get this haircut, and he sends me back to the kitchen, and I'm washing pots. I'm doing my usual, washing pots, crying. Mm. And then what should, what should come on on the radio but my sweet lord, George Harrison. Oh, cool. And, and it put me in such a state of euphoria you know, just to hear my sweet Lord while I was washing pots and I was being so emotional. And at that exact time that all this was going on, the phone rang and I happened to answer it because it was I was the only one in the kitchen at the time. It was my mother, our mother, yeah, <laughs> telling me that if I could get myself to the airport, she had a ticket for me. And so oh, I just plain walked out the door. I walked out the door and I hitchhiked. I hitchhiked from the San Diego facility to the San Diego airport. And I came home and like I mentioned earlier, I was so disoriented and so, you know, yeah. depressed that I um, stayed in bed for the next two months. I couldn't get out of bed for two months after that. Do you that. remember when that was? It was in 1971 because I was there for two years. Yeah, I was there for a year longer than you. Right, yeah, one right. year longer. And I started making my way back to sanity by finally, after two months, getting on my bicycle. Bicycle has been an important piece of equipment in my life. And bicycling over to the bowling alley <laughs> in Gardena and then and just sitting all day long at the bowling alley and watching people bowl and writing my notes on Synanon. But all those notes got lost because my mother sent them all to our uncle, Uncle Lionel, and and I never got them back. So I, I ended up with no I would notes. Love, I would love to see those notes now. Yeah, too late. Do you want to talk a little bit about how Synanon fell apart? Yes, that's the last piece. We need to talk about that, yes. And it's actually perfect that we do, because, uh, you know, the, the second phase of Synanon after a successful rehab operation where, you know, people wrote books about it, like Guy Endor, the sociologist, wrote The Tunnel Back. There was a guy by the name of Yablonsky, who was a sociologist, who wrote about Synanon. It was getting a lot of kudos for being a drug rehab and, an, and a place for alcoholics. But then when it started to take in squares, that was phase two, and it became a lifestyle for everybody. And that's when, after a while, when people got upset with Synanon and, and people started getting upset, like around Tomales Bay, Synanon owned about $22 million worth of property. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Properties in Marin County and Badger County. And they had uh, $8 million coming in in revenue a year. Wow. They, they had 200 cars. They had 400 motorcycles. They had $1 million in the stock market. This is, by the way, Chuck Diedrich. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because they own 62 freight-carrying trucks. They uh, own 12 airplanes, 20 boats, <laughs> and a private jet. Wow. So they, they had all this stuff. And right around 1975, I, I had already been gone for three years, 
Chuck was in a game with with a game player, and this game player was actually putting him down something about all this money and all of this stuff. And and he walked over to her with a can of root beer and poured it over her head. Chuck did? Yeah. Wow. And, that was and, violating a cardinal rule of the game. And then that became, you know, like, it's almost as if the society was really ready to become violent because they were a cult. And because they were a cult and they were hanging on to children, you know, at the same time that that happened, there were members that were wanting to get out of Synanon and their, say, their spouse didn't want to get out of Synanon. So they were now suing in family court to get their kids out. Mm-hmm. And this is how Synanon became entangled in lawsuits in the mid-70s. Uh-huh. And so Chuck, who had already violated his own principle of nonviolence, decided that violence was okay, and he formed two um, operations within Synanon. One was called the Punk Squad, and the Punk Squad were people like me, actually, uh, men in their 20s that were just keeping everybody else in line, you know, like the kids that were negative or wanting to leave. If you wanted to split, the punk squads could beat you up. They could beat you into submission. Now, he also formed another group of people called the Imperial Marines, and that was a group of ex-military. I mean, you know, Synanon had 1,700 residents, and of those 1,700 residents, some of them had military backgrounds, and so they were training people in combat methods and so forth. So you had this group of, say, 50 people that were militant, and they were there to patrol Synanon property and beat up people who were trespassing or people who were trying to split. And so violence kind of became a way of life. Now we have a cult that's becoming fully violent, you know, where violence is now okay. That was the beginning of the end. The beginning Uh of the end was when they overturned the the rule about no violence. Well, what about all the the mass marriages and the mass divorces and all of that? When did that happen? That's another factor. Here's what happened. In 1977, Chuck moved to Badger ranch and and he told a lot of people i just got to get away from all these dope fiends (laughs) that's what he said and his wife died of cancer and he became very distraught because he really loved his wife and so uh you know just the same as when the doctor told him to quit smoking he made everybody quit smoking when the doctor told him to stop eating junk food and exercise he made everybody stop eating junk food and exercise And when he lost his wife in 1977, I think it was toward the tail end of 77, he made everybody in the community divorce and separate. Every couple had to separate. And he assigned like a group of matchmakers that would put people together. So you were assigned a new partner that you could only be with for three years. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any choice or was it the matchmakers who assigned you a partner? It was the matchmakers. Wow. And by the way, so when Chuck lost Betty, she died, he put out an article that he was looking for a a new wife, and there were six people that came forward from the community, and he chose one of them. He was uh, like 64 at the time. She was 31, and that's when all the 
the couples had to start divorcing. You know, he, he was just ordering people to do that. So what, what happened is that as couples were splitting up, some of them didn't like that idea and they wanted to leave. They wanted to leave the community. And so they wanted to get their children out. And did you know that there was actually an underground railroad formed in Tamales Bay that helped some of the youth of Sinanon escape? Huh. Be because the Imperial Marines and the punk squad were enforcing, you know, you cannot leave. People uh -huh. could not leave. So there were people that were getting involved with lawsuits, and there were people who were helping other uh, people escape. And, uh, you know, Chuck became very paranoid. You know, and this is what happens when a cult is causing trouble for the, uh, the society around it. Actually, when Synanon stopped being a rehab, they lost their tax-exempt status. In losing their tax-exempt status, uh, Chuck declared Synanon as a religion, and he called it the Church of Synanon. He was actually struggling to get the tax-exempt status back, but, but he couldn't. And mm -hmm. that's, at the end of Synanon's life, that's what actually killed it, was that the large amount of back taxes that were owed so Synanon dissolved formally. 1991 was the last year of Synanon. Oh. Well, talk about the snake in the mailbox. All right. Had so there was, a, there was a, a lawyer by the name of Paul Morantz, and he uh, had actually had some experience in helping families get their loved ones back from cults. There was a, a resident in Synanon by the name of Phil Ritter, and I think he was a guy in his 40s. And he was one of the guys that just would not have it that he was going to get divorced to his wife. He had been married for about 20 years. He had children. And so his wife actually wanted to stay. She wanted to stay. And so he hired Paul Morantz to help him get his children out of Synanon. And Paul Morantz actually prevailed in court with that order. And that led to actually Synanon being indicted by the authorities. Because you got to remember, right around that time, 1978, that's when Jonestown happened. That's uh -huh. when Jim Jones, he had his own little cult. And all of a sudden now the media and law enforcement was aware of these toxic cults. So there was a lot of force going against Synanon at that time. And uh, Chuck Diedrich and Dan Garrett ordered the Imperial Marines to uh, plant a snake in the mailbox of Paul Morantz. A rattlesnake. <laughs> a rattlesnake. And when he went to get his mail that one morning, he was bitten, and it almost killed him. And he still has uh, a blood disorder and some arthritic problems as a result of that snake. There are still problems he has. And so that was really the beginning of the end. Chuck was under arrest. You know, there was an indictment against Chuck, and Chuck fleed Synanon, and he went to Europe. And I think this was around uh, late 70s, early 80s. And then he had a small group of people around him that was still considered Synanon, and he was trying to hold on to his wealth uh -huh. that I was telling you about. But the uh, government eventually took the wealth. They took all those millions of dollars and all those properties back. And Chuck started drinking. He died a drunk in a motel room. That's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah. 
Wow. That, that was the end of Synanon. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, somebody said to me once, after I'd been out of Synanon for a very, very long time, that he knew Chuck personally, and he told me that Chuck had confided to him that he couldn't trust anybody living in Synanon anymore. He couldn't trust anybody because they just reflected him back. They didn't yep. have their own sense of themselves, which is what I didn't have either when I lived in Synanon, any real authentic sense of myself. They just parroted Chuck. So he yes. couldn't trust them because they were just parroting him. Remember the old Twilight Zone with Rod Serling? And, oh, and yeah. There was this guy who was just in love with this woman, but, but she would have nothing to do with him. So he he ended up getting some love potion, love potion number nine, and he put it in her coffee. And then and then everything he did, she loved. I mean, uh -huh. it, it was like all of a sudden she became a mirror of him, and, uh -huh. and he could do no wrong. He would try to do wrong things, but she would come back loving. And uh -huh. it drove him crazy. It drove him crazy. I think he eventually committed suicide. That's and what that's happened what to Chuck. Did. Yes, and I think that that is a principle of what happens to cult leaders is that they end up not trusting and actually detesting the people closest to them. Yeah. We can have a discussion now about what's going on now, currently, uh -huh. in, the, in the cult of Donald Trump. But I don't think Donald Trump is going to react in the same way as some of these other people. I think that Donald Trump loves people mirroring him. I think that deep down in Donald Trump's soul, other people don't actually exist. It's just him. He's the ultimate narcissist. He demands complete adulation and complete compliance. Yeah. And the ones that drop out, they, they end up writing books, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, he's in that phase of the cult. I don't know how long he can sustain that phase of it, though. But that's an interesting correlation. Synanon fell apart because it lost its spiritual principle of nonviolence. But uh -huh. Donald Trump never had any spiritual principles. Uh -huh. and, and the Republican Party, the cult of Donald Trump, doesn't have any important uh, philosophical or spiritual principles. They really have no ideology whatsoever. Yeah, they've become kind of yeah. bankrupt. But they did. They did. But it got kind of taken away from them by Trump. <laughs> yeah. The ideology is we love Donald Trump and he whatever he mm -hmm. says is the law. It's become the party of Trump. I don't know how that party will, will dissolve, but uh, hopefully we'll just vote it out. What you just heard are the views of the speakers and not necessarily those of the station. If you would like to share your views, you can email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. So anyway, I want to thank you, Sam, for being on my show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. It was fun. Okay. I haven't thought about those things for a long time. Nor have I. It brings it all back. I hope I yeah. don't dream about it tonight. And so ends my brothers and my dive back into the murky waters of Synanon and its founder, Chuck Diederich, 
who, like many cult leaders, became disenchanted with and untrusting of his overly ingratiating followers. Take note, you evangelicals out there. Forgiving your boss Trump for every transgression, every affront to decency, it may come back to haunt you. Now as we draw nearer to the general election, let's go through the checklist. Have you made sure you're registered to vote? The deadline for registration is Monday, October the 5th. Have you requested an absentee ballot? The deadline to request one online is Friday, October the 9th. In either case, go to GoVoteKY.com to check your registration status, to register, to apply for an absentee ballot, or to check the status of your absentee ballot. Ballots should start being mailed to voters who've already requested one beginning the week of September the 28th. Once you've received your ballot, you can fill it out and mail it in. And starting October the 13th, you can either go in person to vote or you can drop off your absentee ballot into several secure drop boxes located at several different spots. One is the Kentucky Exposition Center, 937 Phillips Lane, the Fairgrounds North Wing, or KFC Yum Center on Main and 2nd Street, or the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage at 1701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard, and also the Jefferson County Clerk's Office Election Center at 701 West Ormsby Avenue. Now there's another center for voting on the east end of Louisville, but it's still under negotiation. So we'll have that information for you as soon as it's available. There will be four additional school locations on the day of the election, and those are Ballard High School, 6000 Brownsboro Road, Shawnee High School, 4001 Herman Street, Thomas Jefferson Middle School, 1501 Rangeland Road, and Valley High School, 10200 Dixie Highway. These locations are open on Election Day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Also on the day of the election, November the 3rd, I'm happy to say that TARC is offering free rides that go directly to the Expo Center. These shuttles will leave from the 10th and Broadway Union Station. Be listening next week for another edition of Election Connection. Bye for now.